This episode of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast has been brought to you by our sponsors at Sweet Cheetah Publicity. Sweet Cheetah is a PR collective that values people over profit. They put a different spin on public relations by working primarily with friends and using all profits to aid charitable organizations. With a roster that includes Jawbox, The New Amsterdam's, Brainiac, Get Some, Funeral Date, Damien Dunn, and many more artists, record labels, and podcasts. Sweet Cheetah. That's a great PR cohort. You can find them on social media by simply searching Sweet Cheetah PR, and they'll be there. He's been Tim. I've been Peter. And Sweet Cheetah has been beautiful. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. I'm your host, Peter, and I am still here. And tonight, it's my pleasure to bring to you Vag Moore, formerly of the great hardcore punk band The Dwarves, currently the force behind Chthonic Force. Vag has a new book currently available on Amazon.com entitled My Life After the Dwarves, More Sex, Drugs, Debauchery, and the Devil. When pouring through these pages, uh, you're looking at the life of a man who, you know, having concluded his time with one of the most debaucherous punk bands that ever lived, uh, engaging in various degrees of uh, self-hatred, self-destruction, uh, and ultimately a rebirth, uh, very much like myself finding love on the internet and changing the entire trajectory of his life in the name of uh, his love for this woman. Uh, their journey is not your average by any stretch. Um, a very large spiritual component is involved in their story, uh, which we get into. Vag is nothing if not a thinker, uh, a spiritualist, uh, uh, a devotee of Thelema, which to the uninitiated is the spiritual practice founded by Aleister Crowley. Um, we unpack a lot tonight. Uh, if that sort of thing freaks you out, you're going to get freaked out. But it's a beautiful story. Uh, I love Vag. Incredible human being. I, I'm so happy to count him among my uh, circle of friends. Truly. If you like what you hear, please let your friends know that the book of very, very bad things is something worthwhile. Uh, like, share, subscribe, wherever you listen to podcasts. Without further ado, I bring to you Vag Moore on the book 
of Very Very Bad Things podcast. It's it's so fucking weird that I get you and that you and uh, you know Blag within a couple week period. Yeah. Right. Under vastly dissimilar circumstances, mind so, you. Where was he? Was on the road? I'm guessing. Uh, he he may have been. It looked like he was at home, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know what his home looks like. He looked comfortable, and there were records behind him. Oh, that's that's his home. Yeah, it's to say that's uh, what we called the Hardtail Hotel. <laughs> it's the old dwarves' house. It's a lot of a lot of disturbing things happen in that house. Uh, anything disturbing, spiritual or just carnal? Carnal. Carnal. The spiritual stuff didn't happen until uh, years later for me, anyway. Which I find interesting because, you know, for the most of the people I know who are uh, inclined of the left-hand path, kind of grew up in circumstances where the spiritual kind of was around them, like myself. Mm. I I grew up in a home that was very active, mm. to put it very bluntly. Um, in what? Uh, I thought it was, uh, I thought I had uh, a friend. You know what I'm saying? I thought I had an imaginary friend. His name oh. was Bart, and it, this was not an imaginary individual. Uh, right, right, right. At all. And that kind of got me in, interested, at least in, you know, the left-hand path. Uh, mm. I, I landed on Gnosticism. 35 oh, yeah. years later. Yeah, um, that's great. Gnosticism is fantastic. It's, uh, you know, the most open spirituality I could possibly come across without... Mm -hmm. because it's, it's not didactic. I mean, not fully. Mm -hmm. anyway. Right, right. I'm, unless you're following, like, the Valentinians or, or, or right. any different schools. But to me, Gnosticism is as free as you're going to get. Even when I joined uh, the Church of Satan in 1994... It was a different beast back then. You could be into Gnosticism and still be in the Church of Satan, and there's oh, no sure, sure. They didn't butt heads. Um, then things after, yeah. Doctor Levey passed away. Things changed dramatically. Yeah, well, as my uh, buddy Boyd Rice said, it was. I mean, it was really his organization. And once the head is gone, then there the body dies, and uh, the body has died. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even look at it anymore. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, Boyd, I mean, I, I I had an imaginary friend too when I was a kid, but uh, it, it wasn't any. I mean, it was never anything that spoke with me. But it really wasn't until I mean, when I started performing, as I talk about in the new book, when I started performing um, those Crowley rituals, um, it took a few years, and then I do um, eighth degree sex magic, which is masturbatory sex magic, hmm. and I did it constantly. The sex magic and the the rituals every single day in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. I had this huge living room, and I was able to do Mark of the Beast ritual and Star Ruby, and um, it puts it starts putting through ordeals if you enter the ninety three current, which is the Crowleyan Thelemic path. And boy, I went through some ordeals. Uh, and then what pulled me out of it was was meeting um, the love of my life on, on the internet, uh, which I mentioned in the book. And because um, I loved and respected her so much, you know, I, after going through a few trials and tribulations, I decided I'm never going to drink again. If I, this woman is it. This is who I'm supposed to be with, my soulmate, for lack of a better word. So um, ever since then, um, 
Well, things started happening before I decided to sober up, but it really started kicking in once I did, which you'd think would be the other way around if it was all just, you know, aspect of hallucination or my own imagination. But uh, we definitely contacted entities and the things that started occurring around us, especially around her, was was phenomenal. And um, I've always been a thelemite. I've been a thelemite ever since, I think I was 16 and I went to a record store in my hometown of Mill Valley, California, and there was an interview with uh, Psychic TV. Mm -hmm. And there was a picture of Aleister Crowley. And something in me went, what the fuck? Like, what is this? And uh, it just touched me. I mean, this I'm sure if Crowley had been alive, he would have liked to have touched me too. Yeah, but, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it touched me, and it was like, really strangely, like, I, I had no idea who this was. So I immediately went to the Mill Valley Library and found various books on, by Crowley. And then um, went to City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco and found Magic and Theory and Practice. I didn't understand a fucking word of it. And that's what a lot of people say, like Michael Staley, who was Kenneth Grant's right-hand man or left-hand path man. Yeah. He too told me he didn't understand a damn thing. And a lot of other people, you just don't understand. It's almost like you have to go through certain ordeals and trainings or whatnot if you're really serious to get to the place where it just all makes sense. And then it just, then it just makes perfect sense. But it, it takes a while, that's for sure. But, I mean, obviously, I think Thelema is, a, is another element. Uh, it's a new Gnosticism. And we really did write the Gnostic Mass. Um, but that, that's what's great about Gnosticism is it's just so um, open-ended. It really leaves it up to you to see what touches you the most. You decide what's most important to you and how you're going to proceed. But the Gnostics are amazing. I've been reading... Um, Started reading all the books by Tobias Churton. Yeah. He's, he's incredible. Um, for a Thelemite, he's um, solid gold. I mean, he's written five or six books on Crowley and so many different, covering so many different areas of Crowley's life. There's the first one, spiritual biography that he wrote, or just Alistair Crowley, the biography. And that goes through the, um, the overall look of Crowley's life and his work. But then he's got all these other books, which are amazing. But I, I can't, for some reason, I can't really dive into somebody unless I read one thing by them that really touches me. And I read his The Gnostic Philosophy. Mm -hmm. Amazing book. Absolutely. If you haven't read it yet. That was, my, it. Fir that was my first one, actually. Oh, yeah. No, it's yeah, fantastic. I, I started so he, that. He, yeah. So he, he really inspired me uh, just, uh, just recently. And I've also recently decided I've got to crack the code of William Blake. Uh -huh. So, um, Churton wrote a book on, um, William Blake. I believe it's called Jerusalem, which I'm going to read next after I'm done with the Crowley book. But, um, once you have experiences like I've had in the last 10 years, you realize this shit's real. Mm. And I always knew it was like my instincts always told me there are preternatural intelligences. There are other things going on. There are more subtle energies and, and, places that you can contact um but um i always knew it but once i started uh, being with who i call km in the book um once we got together and she started having experiences and then i i was a little hesitant because i was thinking as i say in the book this could be some somebody put up to like do a put-up job on me to freak me out somebody 
put this girl up to this because maybe I banged his girlfriend back in 92 in the back of the dwarves van or something. I didn't know. Yeah. But then I got hit with that, what I described in the book, the Kundalini experience in Denver. And, uh, that, uh, there was no doubting that (laughs) some real shit right there. And ever since then, uh, you know, it's, it's, I I haven't questioned it for a second. I know that these things exist and, uh, it's been, it's been phenomenal because what's so great is it, it confirmed all of my instincts and intuition ever since I was 16. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of us, uh, we find it in our youth. I mean, I, I became obsessed with Crowley when I was, I was probably 12, just coming across different books that my father had had because he was mm-hmm. into, he was into strange stuff too. He's a really cool Vietnam vet way off his rocker. I miss him dearly, but you know, uh, right, right. Vietnam vets are like that. They're, they saw hell. They bring it home. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, they have. But something about, uh, <clears throat> you know, the occult, really, uh, for a, a, a Roman Catholic, it just mystified my old man. And, and mm. you know, I inherited that from him. It just mm. so happened I inherited a lot of other things, too, from him. Mm-hmm. The, the drug and alcohol gene. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, whatever energy was around him that kind of followed him i inherited that too and that's what really kind of honed my uh my attraction to it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know and i never get to talk about this shit the only other time i've ever gotten even touch upon it is uh when my friend adele sudo came on uh and he's he's basically a gnostic as well but i i think uh people who are into thelema or gnosticism are so far and few between because it is it lacks that uh, that ceremony and didacticism, that church uh, proper, even the Church of Satan has for people because th- mm-hmm. then they're joiners, then they, they, there's fellowship. And mm-hmm. this, it's almost a lone wolf's dance. And that's sort of how I, I, and that's one reason why I like it so much. And Me I, too. you know, I know Thelema is much more popular and much, it's become much larger than ever before. I mean, the 93 current is clearly kicking into overdrive on many different fronts but there are more people into Crowley and Thelema than there ever have been but it's interesting yeah I mean I I always hated the herd I could never stand them you know once I started reading Nietzsche at an early age I'm like oh my god this is me and the outsider by Colin Wilson at a young age and when I was 12 I was like learning how to type because I wanted to be Hunter S. Thompson (laughs) that made my mother nervous that made my mother nervous but um, it's 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 such a process that it's taken me into places like uh, like over the last couple of years I've, I've delved deeply into Buddhism, like deep into it, and um, to the point where I almost just rejected the Lima. Hmm. But I realized what I was doing. I had the do it thou wilt thing down, no problem. It was the love under law. Love is the law. Love under will. It was the love part that I was really having a hard time with because I had really just been an angry, pissed off son of a bitch my whole life, which is why punk rock kind of, you know, saved me. Yeah. But uh, I had to go deep into Buddhism for the last two or three years to try and touch that love part, the compassion, the love. And um, I've just always been such a misanthrope. Boyd Rice certainly helped, you know, open that up for me at an early age. Well, in my 20s when he came out with Music Martinis and Misanthropy, to yeah. me, that was just the greatest. I listened to that, that record over and over and over and over. 
Um, but there, I, there, I felt like I had reached a, reached a, a, a brick wall in my, my um, evolution with Thelema. And there was something I needed to do. And I just, and if you're really following your true will, um, you'll, you'll do it no matter what. And if you don't do it, then your life starts to kind of fall apart. Well, I started going deep into Buddhism. And this is what I've done. And only recently have I kind of come to a realization that I was doing that so I could touch into that compassion and that love. Um, and it's, it's worked. And it really, it really has. Um, but this path is, the Salemic path is like that, where you have to, you can't just follow others. You have to tap into your own, um, obviously your own star, your own true will, and just let it lead you where it wilt. And, um, you know, Buddhism was the one thing that, um, you know, Crowley went through it before he had contact with Iwas. And um, he uh, ended up rejecting it um, because obviously the Book of the Law came along. But he couldn't get to that place to meet his holy guardian angel or to receive the Book of the Law until he had reduced his ego enough, which he did through Buddhism, I believe, to get there so he could actually accommodate all of those things. Um, I was the book of the law and everything that came afterwards. So, I mean, you just, you can't, you really do have to be a lone wolf with all this, I believe. Now, but, in, order, uh, in order to meet your, uh, guardian angel though, uh, there's only, you can only do that like one of two ways through what I would call Gnosis or Diabramelin working, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Um, no, because I, I found my true will. Um, I've never done any of the Abramelin uh, stuff. Um, all I did was uh, every day, sometimes a few times a day, I'd meditate, which I still do every single day. I would do the um, Liber, Liber Regulus or Mark of the Beast ritual in Star Ruby together in conjunction every single day. I still do Star Ruby every single day before I meditate. And um, it was just my will, I guess, because I was opening a door and something came in and it's been been here ever since. And um, KM still speaks to, to Iwas. And um, specific, especially when, say, she's in the shower, it seems like running water uh, is something that sort of opens her up to him. But, um, I mean, when I did dive into Buddhism, even he, through her, through her acting as a flamic oracle, um, she said he, he's delivered a message to you, and, and she texted it out to me, and it essentially said, what, what are you doing, man? I mean, this is a paraphrase, obviously, this is not how I was talks. <laughs> he's like, what, what are you doing, man? Just follow your will. What are you, you're just looking for comfort? What, what, what do you need? And so when you've got the god of the Lima telling you, hey, dude, cut it out. What the fuck is this Buddhist shit? You hear that and still you're like, fuck you. I have to do this, man. I got to go through this. I think that's the real training for, at least in Thelema, for the for somebody that's really, truly going to be sort of a Thelemic Superman or whatever you want to call it. Because mm -hmm. even if you're willing to go against the God that is supposedly, you know, your mentor, or what have you, 
if you're so willing to follow your true will, you'll, you'll even risk pissing off Satan, then you must be truly on the path. I mean, that's sort of how I've come to see it anyway. Now, when we talk about something like Satan, I mean, in, in Thelema, like in, in Gnosticism, Satan is very real. Uh, in Thelema, I'd always kind of assumed that Satan was more of a, of a figurehead than anything else. Well, no, I mean, uh, he, now the, here's the difference between me and, and most Thelemites. I've accepted, like, my first, my only real Thelemic mentor was a guy named Nemo Pandragon, who runs the site iwas.com. And uh, he was friends with a fellow named James Beck. And James Beck, it's believed, was Alistair Crowley's incarnation after Crowley died. So really, it's not actually Crowley, but Iwas inhabited this other person. So it's not really you who reincarnates, it's your angel. Mm -hmm. And so Iwas incarnated into him and he delivered for the world um, the Book of Codes um, and all, all the other books. There's a bunch of other books that are on there. Uh, Iwas.com. And uh, I started reading that about 2009 and then I started writing to the, to the gentleman Nemo Pandragon who started um, who was putting all that up after after James Beck had passed away in 2001. Um, he decided this stuff is too important for Thelema, you know, so he put it up on his website. And um, that's really when things kind of started kicking into overdrive and started setting me up for what ended up happening later with KM. And actually um, having the Kundalini experience I had in Denver and then having her as an oracle essentially and so it says in the book i believe it's in the book of codes he iowas is speaking to james beck and says well i am satan you you didn't know that uh, i am him if you read crowley crowley says satan isn't the satan of judeo-christianity or more like how james milton put it in his book paradise lost satan is is more a uh, lot more like Rahur Kuit. He's a sun god. Mm -hmm. um, Crowley even said that I think when he took the stand for some trial, they said, "Do you do you do you worship Satan?" He says, "No, I, I don't worship Satan. I worship the sun, because that's essentially what Satan is. He's a solar god." So I think he comes in many different forms. I, I think it's it's I think it goes back to the Yazidis. Um, I think at least everything that my Scarlet Woman has told me and what she's intuited is that this is something that's ancient, ancient, ancient. Um, he appeared in Egypt as Set. Mm -hmm. uh, he appeared in um, he appeared in Samaria as uh, Ovis. Um, he's appeared in many different forms, but he did reveal he, he revealed himself to me by giving KM. Um, all these numbers <clears throat> when we were first this is only through facebook messages and all this shit. Yeah. she said he wants me to give you these numbers and i immediately know what to do with them i don't i don't know how but i knew what to do with them so i took the numbers looked at the correspondences in the cabal of crowley's magic and theory and practice libra alba and um figured out every tro card that that letter 
represented and went to each tarot card in Crowley's Book of Thoth and started reading yeah. through it. And every single one who has a starring walk on for each description of each card set. So he was essentially saying, yeah, I'm set. So that was fascinating. And which got me then to kind of look at like, say the temple of set and shit like that. Yeah. I know. Temple I know. Impressed me. No. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's kind of always been Thelema and then um, having read all of Kenneth Grant's books, uh, you know, in the early 90s, I was spending hundreds of dollars for those fucking things. Whereas now you can get them on the internet and Michael Staley and Caroline Weiss are, you know, putting them out in paperback. God, I would have loved that back in the day. Yeah. But um, just obsessed with Kenneth Grant, just read all of his books, just over, even though I didn't understand a goddamn thing, I just read them over and over. In fact, I, I first time I, I came across him in Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger, the name. And then when the dwarves were in New York, me and Black took some acid and were like hanging out over by the Statue of Liberty and somewhere like off, just off to where the Statue of Liberty is, which is ironic. <laughs> and um, found a bookstore and there was Outside the Circles of Time by Kenneth Grant. And I'm like, oh, and it was only eight bucks. Eight bucks. I mean, that book went for, right now that book and that, that printing would be worth probably $3,000. But I just started reading it, hardly understood it, and just kept uh, studying it and studying it and studying it. And then I got slow but sure, got all of his other books. And um, when I went through the last 10 years, when I've gone through everything that I did with KM and seeing, say, what um, menstrual uh, magic, what effect it has on a person who can actually raise their kundalini, mm -hmm. I, it was that's all in Kenneth Grant's books. It's all right there. He, he talks about all of it. I'm like, oh, God, there it is. I've been reading it, but I couldn't put it into context because I didn't see it. Right. But once KM had these experiences, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> and then I really started understanding why they call it the 93 current. Because it's a current of energy. Yeah. And um, it affected me, but I was around her all the time. But when, she, say, she'd go to work, people would get dizzy, they'd fall over. I mean, it was a current of energy that was affecting people, and we saw it. And, you know... She's, she's a very smart, intelligent, disciplined person. And since I quit drinking, I certainly am. So all of this is not just us imagining things. This is stuff that's really happening. So, so once I started having the actual experience with KM and then going back to Kenneth Grant's books and then some of Crowley's, I realized, okay, well, this is real. So now I've got to dive in even stronger than I ever did before. And that current, I mean, <clears throat> I've experienced it, uh, especially with, uh, one person in particular many many years ago when i was in my early 20s and legitimately we we would like take energy from everyone else in the, in the room to the point where we'd be at parties and people were falling asleep oh yeah that's awesome and it's As like it was it was a very palpable very tangible like feeling and she obviously didn't know what to make of it because as, as, she, as, I, as a misanthrope, I would have loved that. Like, let's just put everybody to sleep so we can enjoy ourselves now. It, it, and that's what it was. I mean, we ended up using it to our advantage in a, in a sexual manner, obviously. <laughs> yeah, right. But there, you know, what I, I know that it can be tapped into, but uh, myself, with the exception of that time, I, I don't believe I've ever gotten to that point again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That singular experience with that energy. 
and of course I'd, I'd known there was a name for it. I was a fan of Crowley. I was a fan of current 93. I knew where the name came from. So it all, I put that mm -hmm. all together, but mm -hmm. never got there again. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I'm just lucky. I don't think I'm lucky. I think it was destined. I mean, I was supposed to, like in my book, I say, you know, the chapter of one book is doom or destiny. You decide. But, um, I think it was destiny to meet her and that I was supposed to tap into all of this and because I've studied it for so long. But I really think it was doing all those rituals. And like I said, uh, a Bromelin and uh, all of that, um, see, I, I always kind of shied away from anything that wasn't written by Crowley in terms of magic. Mm -hmm. Something intuitively just told me, why do I need to go back and do these rituals from the old eon? Yeah, you know this is the new eon. Let's let's tap into what's what's going on now instead of trying to. And I know they say like everybody says in all of their books, you know, you really need to, um, for safety's sake or whatever, do the old eon rituals from the golden dawn and what have you. Yeah, and if that's how you feel, you should. That's what you should do. But I something in me was just like fuck that. Let's go. Let's dive right in. You know, I, I fuck safety. <laughs> I haven't yeah. lived. My whole life has been against safety, so why not continue that? You know, and you've you've had this knack for collecting, or 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 making alliances with some of the most interesting and luminary people like that I've ever experienced in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. You know, you know Peter Sotos, you, mm -hmm. you know Boyd Rice, you know these people mm -hmm. that like I greatly admire and respect. And you just found them by happenstance. Is am I am I correct in assuming that? Um, in a sense, I mean, uh, Boyd, I met uh, when he and Hellfire Club were on tour together in San Francisco in '96. Um, and uh, Wendy, who uh, I worked with uh, in on Neither Neither World, and she also helped me on Thonic Forest, my noise band. Yeah. Um, we had been putting out a magazine called Primal Chaos, and um. I think it started moving to online at that point, which was weird for such an early time. But whatever it was, uh, I was supposed to interview him when he showed up. And I guess he had heard of the dwarves and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so uh, when he was there, when they showed up at the um, Trocadero transfer in San Francisco, I went down and, and met him and uh, had my girlfriend at the time take pictures of us. I'm sure I think that's in the book somewhere. Yeah. And um I took pictures and then I did the interview and we must have talked. I mean, we just talked. We got drunk and talked for hours and hours, and it just started a friendship. And then, um, then I, you know, the dwarves. I think the dwarves were in a down period. We're trying to be the Black Dahlia band. Oh, it was a horrible idea. And but maybe us being away for a while got us to be more popular. So when the dwarves came back with the greatest record we ever made, I think, young and good looking. Oh yeah. Um, then we just started hitting the road nonstop. And every time I was in Denver, you know, I, I knew if I went to, we played a show in Denver and I knew if I go down to the lion's lair, which is a place Boyd used to frequent, I know I'm going to find him tonight. I think it was a Friday. Sure enough, I walk in and there he is at, 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 on his, at his booth, you know, he's spinning records and doing all this shit. And, and uh, that, that night we, went off and partied. We went to some party. And of course I'm always looking for powder and uh, I think we got, I think we got meth, but Boyd is, Boyd was pretty sure we got cocaine, but whatever it was, we snorted it up and then we went back to his house and I'm like in Boyd Rice's, the bunker, you know? Yeah. Going, I'm in Boyd Rice's house. 
<laughs> so we just sat and got loaded until the sun rose. <laughs> he showed me his ritual chamber, which he lived in the basement, but then there was a basement to the basement. That just that's where his ritual chamber was. And he had concocted some weird machine that shot off sparks and it seemed like it could kill somebody. This is very hazy, but I do have a hazy memory of this. And then as we were coming back from the party to go to the bunker earlier, he had seen in the window this, what turned out to be, I think it was a dissection table um, for human bodies. Yeah. And, uh, and he thought it was just an S&M table, but I think it turned out to be a dissection table with big buckets underneath. So we went and he purchased it and he says, well, there goes this month's rent. <laughs> and then ever since then, you know, every time I was in town, you know, we just get together and have a good time together. And then with Sotos, Oh, it's so hazy. But we were in, I think, with my band with Wendy. We, we, I was in Phoenix Thunderstone, and we were recording with Steve Albini in Chicago. Maybe we actually connected with Sotos earlier than that, because I think she contacted him because she wanted to interview him for Primal Chaos. And then he wrote her, I've been a fan of yours for years, which is weird. He's like, Mr. Noise guy's been a fan of neither neither world and wendy but yeah he, he really liked her and respected her so we just started this um friendship and then i think i first met him when phoenix thunderstone was in chicago recording with steve albini who had done some white house records the band sodas was in yeah and then he and i met and it just immediately got along you know immediately just because we both drank like fish yeah so that helped and you know i was so obsessed with everything written by the marquis de Sade, and obviously he is too mm -hmm. and uh but yeah i mean it, it wasn't just happenstance for either one of them there was always a reason to get in touch with them but uh, yeah those are two people uh, you know i feel lucky to have met they're very interesting and i got sort of an inside look at how how they operate and you know i those are two people i've gotten shit for you know respecting their work uh, I think they're both massively misunderstood, like massively. Oh, yeah. oh especially um, Peter. Especially Peter, because yeah. like people have challenged me on this. Like, no, he's really he's a child molester. I'm like, no, obviously he's fucking not. Because if, yeah. you, if you look at if you look at the way he he posits his his uh, stance, uh, especially when it comes to that <laughs> book that was written by uh, the Moore's murderer. Uh, Ian Brady. Ian Brady, right? He has a vehement disgust for the man, and he doesn't—he doesn't like hold back. Like no, okay. no, no punches pulled. He's basically saying oh, this yeah. man makes me sick. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he—he he hated that book. He and I argued about it because I was like, "This book is great." He's like, "Oh God, give me a break! That old queen doesn't know what the hell he's doing." <laughs> and I'm like, "I think it's a great book, man." It's well, you're an idiot. So I'd be like, "Okay, fuck you." But I mean, that's just how he is. He's, he, you know, Sotos really has his, he's very interesting and complicated. And anytime he hears anybody try to um, describe him, it just sickens him because yeah. everybody gets it wrong. He's just like, no, no, that's not how I think. You people are idiots. Mm -hmm. So he really, he's really a conundrum. Probably that should be on his gravestone. Peter Conundrum Sotos. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> The best people. Yeah, he, he, I mean, his his writing is just so. And I, I say in my book, I utilized his books, many of which were just given to me by him. And he, of course, he wouldn't sign them. Mm. Of course not. I, th I think he signed one selfish little because I threatened to come to his house and shoot him if he didn't. <laughs> but um, 
he uh yeah the, the way he just gets him i use those books to get myself into a very twisted frame of mind so that i could write uh the prose for one of my books thonic prose and theory yeah and um so i was just doing a steady diet of alcohol marquis de sod and peter sotos and holy hell did it work yeah but he he's so his, his i mean it's it ain't pornography it ain't light reading but the way he it manages sentences and attacks paragraphs in the way it just it's just a really interesting writer i mean i don't even know who the hell you can compare him to i i'd almost want to say william s burroughs but that doesn't even cut it no no to me um, to, to me it's Jean like Genet, maybe i just i have no idea maybe i would actually yeah. liken it to the way he attacked music with white house and especially with that record that he did with albini mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, what was that called? Um, God, oh man, go. I own it, and and I had a hard time getting it. Yeah, yeah. I can see it. I think he gave. I think he gave me a copy. God knows where it is now. Yeah, it, it, that's a hard listen too. But you know, Thonic Force has that same uh, that same vibe. But uh, like, I used to make noise music myself, and every time I would be creating these, you know, I I don't like to call them collages because there was more intent there than just a like a sonic collage but i would get into a frame of mind making this music that was very almost like despairing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, uh, sure. and i often wondered like when you were creating music with thonic force it, did did that have the same sort of effect on you it wasn't despairing no it was more like kind of um predatory triumphant or something because i was a solid Nietzschean, a solid, solid Saudian, um, with a whole bunch of, you know, with the influence of Boyd Rice and Midas Wright thrown in for good measure. So I, I was, I, you know, I coined a phrase years ago, um, the decadent overman, you know, because Nietzsche's whole um, philosophy was Ubermensch. against, yeah, the Ubermensch, but against decadence, yeah. which would be, say, represented by Baudelaire or anybody that engaged in their senses too much like nietzsche liked you to be more stoic like nail it down but then he also admitted that he was a decadent himself because of all of his illnesses and whatnot mm-hmm. so i just i liked you know i always thought of myself as sort of a, a decadent overman and um but the decadent part was just reveling in all of the uh you know the alcohol the drugs the sex oh my god the sex mm-hmm. and um but also, but reveling in it, not not despairing. So the despairing was really far from my mind. It was much more about celebrating, celebrating in a very dark sort of way. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, to me, especially with, like all of your music has its own special something, but Thonic Force, to me, I think smacked the most of, of not knowing you, but getting closer like the closest i could to possibly knowing what sort of person you were through that at that time period anyway yeah yeah there's something I there's some interesting like i think i'm the gotha damon um because boyd and i were working together on dagobert's revenge mm-hmm. and exploring the fallen angels which meant reading the bible which my mother was an atheist i never read the fucking bible so i decided to read the bible and that old testament boy whoo and that's like Jew- Jewish, the Iliad, you know, it's like, wow, there's some violence in there. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I was inspired by the Bible. So most of what's, and a lot of Carl Jung, but most of what's um, inspired 
um, Agatha Damon by Thonic Forest was the Bible. And uh, especially like that song, King of the World, that came from some somewhere Boyd and Tracy and I were researching the idea of the king of the world, this sort of uberman who's taken over, and he was reading a lot of L.A. Waddell and Sumerian um, hieroglyphs or, or stelis. And um, it was it was just all a lot of crazy stuff floating around at the time. But I, but kind of the track underlining, which was strange for me, having you know been a thelemite my whole life, was studying the Bible and getting inspired by it. So a lot of that record is inspired by the Bible, whereas um, the first Thonic Force record was just inspired by flat out Nietzsche and Dasad, you know, mm -hmm. which is pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that second record is probably the most uh, immersive, one of the most immersive uh, noise-based records I've ever heard. A friend of mine who's also who's far more into that style of music than I, I ever had been, and I'm a massive fan of it, uh, he had a hard time getting through it. There's something about that record. Um, it, has, he, has he ever has he ever listened to White House? Oh, he he's he owns the entire White House discography. Oh, and he can get through White House, but he couldn't get through Agatha Damon. <laughs> yeah, the, well, the, there's I guess there's something about that specific uh, uh, content that that really rings true for him. He had a very right, right. he had a very difficult time with that record. I remember, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. No, I mean, not good, not good, and you know, I'm so glad it's hurting somebody. And good, it's good when you get put through ordeals because it means you're moving to something different. You're moving to something else. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I mean, that's that's obvious. And I think this this book that you've written was was even though you'd already gotten through it all by the time I guess you penned the book, it it, it almost feels like writing it would be an ordeal as well because you no. have to kind of live it again. Oh yeah, no, it was tough. It was it was real tough, and to get my myself out of the, that headspace, you know, and because um, everything in my life is about KM. Like I just want, I'm, you know, she's she's an oracle for Thelema, so I want her to be as comfortable and make her as happy as I possibly can. But part of being a high Thelema initiate is you have to go through ordeals, and the ordeals are pretty fucking severe. The higher up you get in the initiatory scale. I'm way down at like Yassad at this point. Like I'm, I'm, I've barely gotten through what would be called the Ordeal X, whereas she's dealing with. And if you read Nemo Pandragon, his site iwas.com in the Book of Codes, it reveals all of this to to people that aren't familiar. But she's going through the final ordeal, Ordeal A, which is all ordeals in one, and it's it's brutal. I mean, so. Um, yeah, so writing that book, I really had to compartmentalize things because it would just tear me up writing the fucking thing. Yeah. And not only did I have to write it by hand first, then I had to type it into the computer, so I'm reliving it like twice and then over and over again while I'm trying to edit it. And I had to compartmentalize, okay, that happened a while ago, it's bothering me now, I'll write this while she's at work and I can just get it out of my system. Then I got to go out for like a jog for about an hour. You know, to just sort of shake it all off and then feel much better. And then, you know, it was around that time, too, and I, while I was writing it, I was doing a lot of Buddhist meditation. So I, it was definitely, it, it affected me in the sense that I really strove to be a better person because I had seen what a horrible person I had been in the past. So do you really think you that, that what you had done, though, from 
you know, your youth and with the dwarves uh, up until the time where you shed all of that, does that make you a horrible person or does that make you? No, just the period of time after I left the dwarves until about 10 years ago. Cause what I did to my, my ex-wife and, uh, and how I was treating other people. I mean, it's, it's all in the book. Yeah. I was just, I was a drunken mess. I was just, I was, um, I was in a, a, a high speed uh, truck going downhill with no brakes. I mean, it was, it was insane. And anybody that got in my way got smashed. Yeah. Um, people whose hearts I broke, you know, because I was going through my midlife crisis or whatever the hell it was. And it ain't no normal midnight crisis. I mean, yeah, it's just, it was insane. I mean, and, and the drinking just never stopped. I mean, except when I went to rehab, you know, three times in a row. Yeah. Um, it just never stopped. It was morning, noon, and night. It was just go, go, go. And mix that with obsessed with sex, just needing sex from any place I could get it. Um, you know, it, 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 how I treated people, um, I definitely feel ashamed of now. During that period. Now, with the dwarves... If you come to a dwarf show, you're entering the arena, right? You know it. You know it. If you, if at this point, well, even back then, if at this point you don't know what it's going to be about, then you should just turn around and get the fuck out. Yeah. But with that, it's like on stage and even off stage, you're putting on a show. And I was badge more twenty four seven when I was on the road, and uh, that to me, it's like people know what they're getting. So I don't want to hear your complaints. So that was more like celebration. I, I told them. Uh, Danny Bland, who is key in actually getting me to rehab and, and saving my life, he wrote the introduction to this book. Mm -hmm. And um, he, um, it's like what he went through was amazing because he was going through what I was going through, but about, God, how many decades before? I mean, I guess it was in 92 or 93. He had to go to rehab. As soon as he got out of rehab, he joined the dwarves. What the hell? Everybody was like, what are you thinking, man? <laughs> but but it was what he had to go through, and he, 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 he's he been sober ever since, and he just it was amazing. That was something that really, he really inspired me, actually, to get my shit together and whatnot. But um, I guess we all go through different things at different periods, and we have to follow through whatever we have to follow through. I, you know, I'm sure I feel bad about how I treated people in those 10 years, but at the same time, I, you know, I also know I wouldn't be the person I am now if I hadn't gone through all that and I, this, I i think you there has to come a point for you where what you just said has to really ring true because the like that time machine is never going to come for us you know what i mean we're never going to be able to go yeah, back, going back. No. as much as like you know in the 12-step program what you know we get into amends and stuff like that and that's great mm -hmm. but you're never going to be able to undo it and yeah. we we all we all transgress. There's oh, no, sure. there's no getting around it, mm -hmm. but everything you're guilty of, I'm guilty of. So mm -hmm. yeah, maybe mm -hmm. I'm just saying that to try and you know, forgive myself. Sure, sure. But I also don't think you would have, not only would you not have fallen in love, uh, and you wouldn't have ascended to this spiritual pinnacle. Had you not gone through those trials that, are necessary in 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 your belief system to mm -hmm. get there you know uh, it, yeah, it's all yeah. it's all i i hate to say planned but it is yeah i mean um i think it's it's well 
obviously in Thelema you have the true will and you need to follow your true will otherwise everything's going to fall apart. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, your true will is planned. But if you start straying off that path, man, you're going to run into some rocks. Yeah. And, that, and I was running into rocks there for about 14 years, I guess. <laughs> I'm trying to remember how long it was. Because once I left the dwarves, I mean, it was just, you know. And I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I did. I'm glad I didn't stay in the band because I wouldn't have been able to go off and, and do everything I've done. And God bless Blag for still sticking it out and fucking going out there every goddamn year on the road and doing this. You know, it's just amazing. And he does it for the love of the music, you know. And I love the music too, but I think I was doing it for the experiences, you know, just the amazing experiences. And, um, once that was over, you know, I, I loved the ego boost, so I kept trying to relive the ego boost in various ways, and eh, well, it wasn't working, man, because, you, you know, you're not that anymore. You're, you're, you've left the band. You don't have the excuse now. You don't have an excuse to be an asshole, a drunken idiot anymore. Yeah. Um, now you're just a, a dude without a band, the book that's barely selling, with a drinking problem, and you're just pissing people off left and right, so... So I strayed off that path, but it wasn't until I got in contact with KM that slowly but surely I started sliding back into my true will, and it's been like that ever since. Do you think there's going to be a space in this new version of yourself uh, where you will continue to make music of some sort? Maybe. Um, I know uh, Wendy and I have discussed uh, doing a new Thonic Force that may or may not happen. She, she's um, always she's just moved, and uh, I just don't know if we have the time to actually do it. But who knows? Somewhere down the line, we might. One good thing about Thonic Force, you know, I kind of liken it to Coil. You know, um, you know, they barely played live. Yeah. Um, and um, they just got older and just kept on sort of evolving as a band. You know. And Genesis Peorge from, from Psychic TV, Throbbing Gristle, Gristle did the same. So I feel like, as opposed to a rock band, there's no pressure to, like, put out a record, hit the road, you know, go back home, rehearse, write songs, put out a record, hit the road, go back. You know, there's no pressure like that. But the band like Thonic Force, you know, just put it out whenever the hell I feel like it. That, same with, that's how Boyd Rice has been running non for his entire life, you know. It's like one of his greatest records was God and Beast, and then he put out Receive the Flame, and then after that, it's a long time until he put out a record because he just it's like, eh, just not feeling it, man. Yeah. You know, all the little parts and pieces didn't come together, but then he put out that last one. And, uh, it, you know, I feel like Thonic Force is the same way. Like, you know, if, the, if all the elements come together, yeah, sure, we'll put out another one. But if not, eh, doesn't bother me. So part three of the book of this trilogy is in somewhere in the future. Uh, is there anything else like in a literary sense that you've been working on that that's going to come to light in the near future? Um, well, after, yeah, first I like within the coming weeks, I, I got to take a break because the writing and then, and I dealt with a horrible layout person for this book. Yeah. It was just a nightmare. Um, I'm just putting all that aside. I'm like, yeah, I just want to relax for a little while, you know, but I know, I, but just like what happened at the end of the first wars book before I started my second book, um, something's 
working around in the back of my brain, start to remember stories like, okay, who can I contact to get confirmation about this happening and that happening? Blah, blah, blah. So that's even though I'm saying I don't even want to think about it right now, something in the back of my brain is going, okay, let's get contact with guys I used to know in junior high school. All right, let's see where this began. How did this start? Talk to your sister. Let's see what she says. So it's all sort of germinating back there and percolating. Um, then after that, uh, I mentioned in the new book that there's going to be a book about me and Cam's experiences with Lima and the 93 Current, and that'll be called For the Love of the Serpent. Mm -hmm. And that's going to include all of our communications with IWASPs, which are all right in that closet. I wrote them all down. Um, she had to write them down because when she spoke during this oracle situation, you, you couldn't understand the damn word she was saying. So I was like, I just gave her the pen and pencil when it first started happening, and or the pen and pad, and said, here, write this shit down. And she'd just be in a total trance. But then she would write it down. Then once she came out, then I would copy it in a more legible form, and she would help me, like, no, that's that word, that's that word. So all of that is going to be included in For the Love of the Serpent. The story, a more detailed story about how that all transpired is going to come out. Um, there's going to be uh, detailed explanations about uh, how this actually operates, um, what Kenneth Grant and Crowley and others have said about, say, the, the, um, the menstrual rights. Um, I mean... This is still, this is also percolating in the back of my brain, but there's a lot more to sort of hash out. But yeah, uh, that'll be the next one after the final book of the trilogy. And um, then after that, I, ha I've, I had a book that I wrote actually while we were in the middle of all this, um, this craziness over the last 10 years. I wrote a book called Demonic Love Under a Red Moon, which once we got to New Orleans, um, she's like, you just, you need to write a book about all these experiences we're having. I've been looking over Foucault's Fountain by, oh God, what was the guy's name? I have the book over here somewhere. But um, it was like a, a book that was inspired by Western magic and Crowley's mention in there in the Golden Dawn, what have you. And I thought, well, instead of me having to actually get a job, maybe I can write this book and it'll be a bestseller. Oh yeah, that'll just happen overnight. <laughs> but at least it inspired me to do it. So uh, Demonic Love Under a Red Moon will be out eventually someday. And um, then other than that, the only other thing that's been sitting in my back of my brain for a while are the correspondences that me and Nemo Pandragon had. He, my Thelemic mentor. Um, KM is still writing to him and still in communication with him, but uh, I've sort of, once she appeared, I've sort of let those two, because she really needs more mentoring than I do at this point. But I've got... Um, huge three or four spiral notebooks of, of emails between he and I before I ever met Cam and then during the time that we met. And so I'd like someday to take that and, and turn that into a book about correspondence between he and I because his take on Thelema and all of that is it's amazing. I mean, it's I, I, uh, I uh, push everyone to go to iwas.com A-I-W-A-S-S-W-A-W a-I-W-A-S-S dot com. And uh, if it touches you, then yeah, read through it. It's, it's amazing because he gave me a different perspective on Thelema than I'd ever had before. When I first came upon that site, I was like, what is this? Because it's purporting to be a, a new revelation from IWAS and all this stuff. And all this happened like back in 1977 and what have you. But um, 
it really that and you know obviously Crowley's own works and then Kenneth Grant's works just have so inspired me but it was really the mentorship of Nemo Pandragon that really really helped me and really got me going and gave me a new and different perspective on Thelema and how it is so there's a lot of correspondence between he and I over the period of 2009 to 2014 I guess it was and then I sort of passed him over to to km and um but the, yeah there's some fascinating stuff in there so that's going to take a long time to go through that hundreds of pages of you know emails i'm going to have to kind of winnow it down winnow it down to like the best stuff but the, that's and unless i come up with something else that'll be the last thing that i'll be i'll be publishing but that's years years in the future and so, uh, right now I'm just concentrating on finishing the the trilogy. So you, you're putting like uh, sort of a moratorium on on the end of your writing career. Well, I mean, if I line things up too much, then it'll I'll just be so overwhelmed. I'll just curl up on the floor and start sucking my thumb. It's like fuck. <laughs> so I think my brain is just like, all right, dummy, just this and this and that, and then we'll see. It's like, okay, I can do that. So after that, who knows? So with all, like, within the confines of your own view of Thelema and the spiritual world, uh, do you have an opinion on, you know, where where these beings actually reside? Or is it a dimensional thing? Or Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, I started reading, you know, when we were having those, these experiences, Cam and I, um, I started reading... Um, modern day physics, quantum physics, um, mm -hmm. all the different dimensions. And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's what I've been experiencing for the last few years. So yeah, I know this exists. So uh, yeah, it's a dimensional thing. The, these things, and I don't know if this is physics, but this is my own personal belief about these beings and, and whatnot, like IWAS and what have you, um, or Bobby Osna as he revealed himself to us. Um, they vibrate at a different frequency. And that's what makes different. Um, that's what makes different dimensions, different frequencies. Now, a physicist might watch this and go, "What? No, that can't be. It's not." But that's just my intuition. They just vibrate at different frequencies. To me, that makes sense. Coming from a guy, coming from a guy who took his GED and never graduated high school. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, like dimensions. Are, like we're we're finding out now that uh, the gentleman who had. Uh, come out and said that he was uh, reverse engineering alien spacecraft. Uh, his name escapes me at the moment, but he said back in the 70s that gravity moves in waves. And every, every scientist on Earth was like, preposterous, wrong. We found out right, th right. this past year. It's, now they're it's, saying it. It's the truth. Uh, well, I mean, uh, when I was studying... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. But, like, if you think about it, uh, you know, that's still based on waves there's still like a sine wave to it there's still a frequency to it i mean to me it only makes sense that you know dimensional the different dimensions are based upon frequency like crystals and the like people we we were kind of almost right when it came to things like that because crystals we know have a radio frequency mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sure sure yeah but, i mean they're yeah there's crystal crystal um Fueled radios or what have you. I, yep. Again, 
just got my GED, so I never graduated high school. So I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, what you know, some of the books that really fascinated me, like um, well, like, during my period of really studying um, Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, the fourteenth Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama, and man's a genius. I mean, you, you see um, him on TV, and he seems like such a smiley dope, you know, hi, do, 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 but man, you read his books, and this guy is mind as sharp as, like a razor blade. And uh, he really dedicated a lot of his time to writing books about um, uh, the findings of Buddhists all the way back to Buddha himself 2,000, almost 600 years ago, to what physicists have been discovering just recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just have to look at that and go, well, wow, I mean, it's, it's incredible. So it's always been true. And I always kind of felt it anyway. If you meditate enough and go deep in, enough inside of yourself, you go deep enough and quiet the ego and the conscious mind, you're going to tap into what is the basis of everything. And so many people um, say, oh, Buddhism is about um, nothingness. Nothing exists. It's pretty nihilistic. No, that's not what they're saying. No. They're saying is... Everything is based on dependent origination. What does that mean? It means that everything is dependent on everything else. Everything. There's no independent self. There's no independent matter. There's no independent nothing. Everything is connected and based on something else for its origination. And nothing ever begins and nothing ever ends. And um, the Dalai Lama really harped on that a lot in so many of these books about, you know, of physics and Buddhism. And um, it's just always been something that sort of stuck with me. Now, physicists will say some worlds do collapse, but then they balloon and bubble out to a new universe. So really, it's never ending. No. This one might be ending, but then this one bubbles out to a whole new universe. So, it, you know, that's something, while I was reading the Dalai Lama's books on physics, I was just all constantly reminded about, reminded of Aleister Crowley. The method of science... What does he say? Um, the method of science, the something of religion. I, I can't remember. I'm getting old and senile. <laughs> but Crowley always emphasized during all of this, um, experiencing all of this magic in these higher states of consciousness, he emphasized how important it is to utilize science to understand it. And he believed that as our experiences and the spirituality grows, our understanding of physics will increase as well. And if Crowley had been alive today, he'd be reading some of these books by, what's his name, Machu Kuku Kaku, I can't remember his name, it's been a few years since I read his books. But Crowley would have read those books and gone like, oh, yeah, that's that's how I contact IWAS, that's how all this has been happening. And so you just have to... You know, that's one, that's one reason why I really felt... Um, Buddhism was really important for my future evolution because I started reading these books by the Dalai Lama and it just seemed like it was Crowley speaking from out of the past. You know, from two completely different types of people, right. obviously. Dalai Lama ain't snorting coke off hookers' tits or nothing. <laughs> but um, the way they would tap into things and the way they would um, confront the truth um, was very similar, and it was just really, really fascinating to me, because I had always been adamantly against Buddhism my whole life. You know, I was like, fuck that. Um, even one time when the dwarves were recording, um, uh, thank heaven for little girls in, in, um, Madison, Wisconsin, 
I remember uh, we saw some Buddhists walking down the street, and I just started yelling, God damn Buddhists! And I was going to go over and start hitting them. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Because a part of me was like, who would be angry at Buddhists? But I decided I was going to be. You know? <laughs> They're the most loving people in the world. But I was like, I'll kill you, you fucking goddamn Buddhist nirvana then. So, you know, I'd always been um, adamantly opposed, but also respecting it, you know, and seeing the ridiculousness of somebody being mad at a Buddhist. Yeah. Uh, but I did, I, but I, something in me just started telling me I have to start utilizing this to understand, you know, compassion and love. Because if every man and every woman is a star, you should have some compassion for each one of those people, no matter who they are. And so that was, ba that was bashing up against my many years of misanthropy and many years of Nietzschean uh, elitism and whatnot. But it was something that just had to be done. But um, I've just found, you know, I'm not rejecting anything anymore. Like, I, what I, I no longer, for my spiritual path, there's no longer anything that I won't dive into. Because if it feels right, if I resonate to it, and if it feels like something I need to do at this particular time for my evolution, then that's what I'm going to do. So it's really sort of opened up the world for me in a lot of ways, more than ever before. It's interesting. It's, it, it's, it's pretty amazing to me that someone who could have mined the depths so fully, like, and, and truly gone to what is the most bottom of bottoms uh, when it concerns the human spirit and the human body, uh, to be completely lifted back up out of it and have that mindset at the end of it, always, always fascinating to me. It's, it's fantastic because, you know, going through that much, even like having been to rehab and things like that, that, that still breaks people. That still puts people in a place where like, okay, yeah, I'm sober. I'm here. Now what? Right, right. For for you, there was never the now what. It's just yeah. I have to be sober because I'm going here. Yeah, there was a trajectory yeah. that was always in your purview, and yeah. and that's that's the incredible part. I think that's the part that if you're going to glean anything from this book, I I would think it would be that that you know the goal wasn't just to become sober, uh, uh, to shed yourself of dependence, but truly. Uh, trying to attain something mm -hmm. more enlightened and, and, and more at one with what the universe has for us. Yeah. And I, what I was, what I utilized initially was Nietzsche and obviously Thelema has been with me since I was, like I said, 16, maybe it was even younger, but I think it was 16, but um, something in me just knew you have to ascend, man. There's more to do. Wherever you are now, it's limiting. You gotta go someplace unlimited. And uh, Nietzsche really helped me when I got sober. Which you know, so many people were like, "Oh, you really should be reading the Bible or the Big Book or whatever." I just, even when I was at rehab, I was reading, you know, Walter Kaufman's Portable Nietzsche and making notes, you know, on the side with a pencil and just like concentrating on this. Like, I'm gonna make myself a Nietzschean overman, God damn it, even if it kills me. <laughs> and um, that's really what uh, saved me because I, I started imposing intense self-discipline on myself. And I still do it today, just not with as much, um, not, not with as much um, insanity, I guess. But I, you know, 
I guess I had to have that kind of insanity because I had come from a place of just no discipline and well, maybe not necessarily true because even, even in my worst states, I was still performing rituals and doing all that stuff, but, and jogging for that matter. <laughs> um, but after I, once I put down the bottle and Cam and I got together and moved in together in New Orleans, it was just, yeah, it was like a tra trajectory to, I have an ideal in my head, the Nietzschean overman, that's what I'm going to be. And it worked great. It got me into pl in a place where now it's like, without even thinking about it, you know, I jog every day. Um, I have in my backyard, I've turned into a jogging track. I mean, it's, it's, God, it's fantastic. Um, but then also there's the spiritual. It's not just about, you know, being a, a bodily overman. It's about, um, tapping into something higher. So there's your Crowley. And then, uh, through all of that, I still felt like I was, um, blocking myself from various things. So then I ingested a whole lot of Buddhism and started following that. And then I realized I had the will down, just not the love. And I've got that down pretty well. So um, right now I'm just in a, in a place where I'm, I think we talked about, you know, Tobias Churton. Yeah. His books are, are phenomenal. So I'm really sort of, you know, ingesting uh, everything that uh, he's written. And I feel like I'm a born-again Thelemite. You know, it's really sort of interesting. Like, uh, I'm back into it. It's just for the last few years of being Mr. Buddhism, I now feel like, you know, I, I'm born again as, you know, disciple of Satan or whatever. <laughs> and uh, But there's always something, you know, one thing I loved about Buddhism for all those years, and when I get into something, maybe you've noticed, I go in whole hog. Yeah. I mean, I dive right the fuck in. <laughs> so when I dove into Buddhism, I dove into it deep and constant. Um, at work, I've got all these Buddhist books on my phone. At home, I'm studying constantly. And um, the one thing I loved so much about embracing all that was there's got to be trillions of books on Buddhism out there. And I mean, there must be trillions. No, you can't yeah. ever run out. You, I can, I can be doing this for the rest of my life, and I'll still read new books that I never saw before. Thank you to the internet and these PDF downloads and whatnot. But it's just, it's phenomenal. And uh, so when I dug dug into it, I really dug in deep and, and just, you know, um, just overload on all of it so much. And uh, now I feel like, you know, I don't know where it's going to lead, but now I feel like the next overload for me is going to be William Blake. You know, I really want to dive into him and, and understand uh, his system. I always felt like there's something, and I know, you know, I've already done it, but I, when I write these books, like especially this trilogy, um, I kind of go away, and it just sort of comes out. Yeah. Um, and when I'm writing now, my ego seems to go away, and sometimes I kind of wake up at the end of it. I'm like, what did I just write? Um, like I recently wrote a, uh, a little bit for a Dwarves release that's coming out pretty soon. I won't say much about it because, you know, they haven't announced it yet. But I, yeah. I wrote a little bit, and... I kind of went into a trance when I wrote this thing. And then when I came out of it, I'm like, oh, that's, that's quite good. <laughs> Who wrote that? And uh, so I love the idea of the, the poet, the artist who, um, whose ego disappears and something else comes through him. Like he's the, like a cam has been the Oracle for what's been going on with us. Like I become sort of an uh, Oracle for probably my true self, you know, and that's uh, William Blake to me is is always represented that. I mean, 
he, his ego had to disappear for all of this amazing stuff to come out. And so I want to really delve into him afterwards, uh, after I'm done with all of this, um, and really understand him. He's, he's definitely one of the, um, Gnostic saints, I believe really mentions him as William Blake yeah. as a Gnostic saint. So it's, it's been something I've been wanting to embrace for years, but God, have you ever tried to read William Blake? I own everything William Blake has ever done. Uh, I, I, I reach different points in my life where I'm like, okay, I get it. And, and then I, I find that I've been completely wrong the entire time. Right. Especially when you consider the fact that Blake wasn't just writing. There's art involved. There's like art and there's engravings and, and all this shit. Like, like, Blake was the first king of of all media as as <laughs> it were you know yeah, he's the, the old howard stern he, he was the first howard stern he did everything. <laughs> he, he legitimately yeah, i've been want, i've been wanting to crack his code for years and i just uh, you know when i sit down and try to read it it's like i know this is great and beautiful but what the fuck but I mean, that's how i felt when i first started reading crowley many 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 years ago so i i know there's something more to, to so i don't know so i guess where i'm getting at with all this babbling is that I feel that William Blake and um, Gnosticism are going to sort of be the basis of a new launching pad for something else, and I'm not quite sure what. I, I have to ask this, and I ask it of every guest. It's the only question I ask every guest, but I think of all of my guests, your answer is probably the one I would love to hear most. And that is, what is it that you badge are most existentially terrified of what is that that deepest of dreads that you still foster i'm not afraid of death uh, i'm not even really afraid of horrible violence i guess the, the only thing i'd be afraid of is say um getting alzheimer's or uh or having an extreme head wound where i'm just checked out that's probably the only thing that terrifies me. Still being alive, but being sort of a vegetable. Loss of self. I, I don't, no, don't, I can't. I can't go there. I'd be like, take me out, because no. And um, um, my mother was actually the same way. She told me, you know, hey, if somebody, because my brother had gone off to college and then worked for IBM, and my sister went off, and she passed the bar, and she's an attorney, and blah, blah, blah. So they were both off, and so me and my mother had you know, spent a lot of time together. And she told me once, um, you know, when it's my time to go, and she, she had me when she was 42, so she was getting old even when I was in my 20s and 30s. Hmm. When it's my time to go, uh, you know, if, if something happens to me and I'm checked out, don't keep me on a machine. I, I don't want to be an asparagus yeah. hooked up to, to machines. Just get me out. So when it came time to, to do that, when the doctor asked us after she had, I mentioned this in the book, when doctor asked us after she had had her stroke and she's hooked up to this machine, this breathing machine apparatus that was keeping her alive, they said, so he, doctor took us into the room and he said to us, uh, so do any of you know what her wishes were? Would she want to stay alive? Do we, should we unplug her? What's, what are your thoughts? And then both my brother and my sister looked at me like, I'm like, well, she always told me, you know, if she's going to be a vegetable, take her out yeah so that's a say i guess that's my worst fear so if i'm going to be a vegetable take me out i'm done but yeah, you know i've never what's odd is i've never been afraid of death 
Like uh, something me in me just knows. Yeah, big deal. We'll just me move neither. on. You know, like, never one of my fears. Never. Yeah, like I want on my gravestone to say, you know, um, Tim Madison lived 1967 to whenever, uh, and then in quotation marks with an exclamation mark. Next. <laughs> Go again. That's one. That's one of the things that Crowley mentioned in. Uh, oh, I can't for the life of me. It might be in Magic and Theory and Practice. He has an amazing um, analogy, metaphor, whatever. He says that life is really just like a Punch and Judy show, you know. And then you just get taken out, but then you pop back up. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what happens. <laughs> life is a Punch and Judy show. And if people get Punch and Judy, uh, oh probably- right. You're probably our age or definitely older. Yeah, but look it up on the internets, kids. Look it up on the and on them their interwebs. But yeah, you brought up something else that I kind of want to broach really quickly uh, because I'm 47, and four years ago, I had another child with my my wife. Uh, so, like, when he's in his teens and 20s, I'm going to be elderly, like elderly. Um, right. How how did that dynamic, uh, being that your your mother was in her forties when she had you, how did that dynamic between she and yourself differ than that of maybe your older siblings? Well, they my older siblings had my father. I, I'm not trying to be sexist, but straight up, you know, this is in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, I don't know when they were growing up, my brother and my sister. So there was no screwing around. You know, my my dad was an amazing person. He did so. I, I had the in-laws over the other uh, day, and um, and uh, I found my father's obituary online and just read it to them. Like this is what he's done, forty-two four short years, and all, everybody was just sitting around the dinner table going, like, holy shit! No wonder this guy died at forty-two. I mean, talk about an overman! Like Jesus Christ. So uh, I'm sure he was a no-nonsense kind of character, but everyone says he was a wonderful man, very much a saint. But um, there was no screwing around. My brother ended up becoming a world-renowned physicist who worked for IBM. My sister ended up, ended up becoming a, a defense attorney in San Francisco. She became widely known as the pit bull of San Francisco. I, on the other hand, <laughs> joined a band whose first record I played on was called Blood, Guts, and Pussy. Yes. But, you know, every, but everything I've carried on with that through all of that, you know, I've obviously followed my own path. And um, my mother just could not control me. Without my father there who died when I was five months old, I just did whatever the fuck I wanted. You know, I ran away from home probably at 13, lived in squats and abandoned vehicles. And But there was a scene, this is like between 1979 and 1983 or whatever. I mean, there was a punk rock scene. We had a tribe and we all hung out together. Yeah. And, you know, you'd, you'd go sleep, you know, in an abandoned house or at somebody else's house and get up and, you know, figure out a way to get loaded and go to see Black Flag or the Circle Jerks or TSOL or Wasted Youth. I mean, every night there was something to do. And so, but I, I pretty much just ran wild, wild in the streets. Running, running. <laughs> running, running, literally. Um, but then, you know... I, it just, you know, I, I guess I just started slowing down and various things happened that just sort of turned my mind around. And then I became a lot more introspective. And then I tried going to college for a time, you know, and I had played in bands when I was younger. Um, 
And um, then I just got a job at like this law firm and I was a clerk in the mailroom and I was just a schlub, you know, and I just thought, well, you know, I can do this for the rest of my life, work here until it's time to retire and die. Uh, and I was playing in bands, Sonic Brain Jam, and uh, he who cannot be named had a band that we did together with his girlfriend called Gaping Wounds. I don't know if they've ever released any of that stuff. But so, but then the dwarves came along and Blag convinced me to join. And believe it or not, it's like early 88, mid 88, Blag had to talk me into joining the band. I'm like, I don't know, I'm pretty comfortable, you know. It's, and this is, dwarves had like Tool and Four Warm Teabag came out and horror stories. Yeah. And I loved Tool and Four Warm Teabag. I thought it was incredible. Um, but I'm like, yeah, I got a pretty cushy life right now. Do I really want to change that? And then, Black comes in like Caesar or something that's just like fills me up with all these ideas and like, you know, this glorious future and promised me promising me also we'll do one record and then we'll tour and we'll break up. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, sure. So how long will this last? Like a year? It's like, yeah. A dozen years later. Yep. <laughs> one fucking day. But you know, I, I wouldn't have uh, had it any other way. There's so, so many weird, weird dualities though. Uh, uh, you know, that you keep bringing up that that kind of ride uh, a concentric circle around my life and experiences up to and including your first album with the dwarves was my first album that I bought by the dwarves. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I was 15 years old. I, I oh, wow. the story, and why would I not want that young? Oh, hell yeah. Tits. Punk, there's tits. <laughs> I'm, I'm already a hardcore kid at this point. I had uh -huh. been since I was like 12. Well, actually, <laughs> younger, uh, because mm -hmm. I went I went to see The Clash open for The Who with my dad when I was very young. Oh, wow. That would have been cool. Blew my whole fucking world open. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. But I, I'm looking at this record cover, and I'm like, yeah, I want this. Of course I want this. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Open my whole world up. But there's a very, very large chunk of my life that kind of would not have happened had the Vagmore not existed. Uh, and, and I, I have to thank you for that because you've been kind of like that one of the demons on my shoulder for that. And from 15 until 47, you know, well, thank you. <laughs> it I is, have it, to say there's a whole huge chunk of my life. that would never have happened if Vagmore had never existed. <laughs> I created him, you know, you know, right. in later years, uh, I don't know if I think about it so much today because they're just so fused Tim Madison and Vagmore. There was a time where I had to sort of do what Alistair Crowley, I'm sorry, what Alice Cooper did, mm -hmm. where he had to say, there's Vincent Fournier and there's Alice Cooper, and there's time for Cooper, there's time for Alice, and there's time for Vincent, you know. And I had to kind of do that for a little while, even though it didn't particularly work. Um, Vag Moore just took over my life completely, even after I'd left the band, which was very destructive. But, um, yeah, I mean, I really have Blag to blame for all this. I mean, his fucking fault bastard <laughs> but you're not you never let go of the name no because i knew i mean I, I knew i had to i knew i wanted to write and i knew i i had a lot of creative stuff i've been writing ever since i was a teenager you know henry rollins and hunter s thompson inspired me mm -hmm. hunter s thompson wrote then rollins put out these tiny little books this is before he had you know his publishing company he put out these tiny little books that he had xerox me to have it shows yeah i'm like i can do that and i've been writing shit for years so i just started putting that out and I knew nobody's going to buy a book by Tim Madison, you know, after 12 years as Vagmore. So I'm like, oh, shit, as Vagmore, of course. 
and then um, then it was uh, you know I put out Thornic Pros and Theory, and I put out Malevolence. None of them, neither one of them, sold were shit. And then I was doing various um, articles and um, like books for uh, Michael Staling, Caroline Weiss, Kenneth Grant's um, people, yeah, and um, various other things as well. Um, but I'll just never forget um, watching the Dirt Motley Crew, the Dirt. Mm-hmm. And kind of getting intimations of what Nikki Six's book was, you know. And I watched it, and I'm like, well, fuck, the dwarves lived like this, but we did it on a shoestring budget, you know. Yeah. Well, if this guy could write this book, then fuck, why don't I write this book? And his book is like, what is the dirt? It's like 500 pages long or something. It's yep. big. I'm like, dwarves fans don't have the attention span for that. So <laughs> I said, I'll just make it short and sweet, like a dwarf show. Yeah. I make it like a dwarf show. It's just like, get on. Wreck a bunch of shit, fuck a bunch of people, get off and feedback and smoke, and that's it. And so uh, it was. I just started writing it. It just sort of started coming out. But uh, yeah, I mean, Vagmore has been sort of a, a curse and a blessing, you know, both at the same time, so many strange ways. Now, much more of a blessing. Like I'm really glad I had that experience and glad of what I've made out of that name, you know. When people think, and if you know who Vagmore is, people that think about Vagmore, a lot of things pop up. No. And, um, yeah, and I'm really glad now that that's, you know, you can see all the crazy degeneracy, all the insane libertinism, but then what emerges out of all that, out of the Phoenix Rises, and what emerges out of it is somebody with, you know, a lot of discipline, um, strength, love, um, and a higher and yearning for something higher, and that's sort of what I've always done—just yearning for something higher. And that takes courage to chase. I, I don't yeah. care who you are or or what it is, what version of of enlightenment you're chasing. Uh, to come out and actually tell the world, okay, this is what I'm after, and here's how I'm about to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. Most people like they're going to look at you like. You know, they probably looked at Jesus two thousand years ago. Two thousand, like just real. Okay, really. You know, <laughs> are you comparing Vagmore to Jesus? It's still a spiritual journey, is it not? You're going to hell, so <laughs> If I if I'm going to hell, I'm in phenomenal company. There you go. That's what I, that's what I always thought. <laughs> we'll be there with everybody, including William Blake. Include well, that's the first person I'm looking for. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, it's always there's just. As long as I can remember, it might have really kicked in when I first saw the picture of, of Alistair Crowley in that magazine with Psychic TV. But something just kicked in. But even before that, you know, I was obsessed with Hunter S. Thompson and I wanted to write like him. I started writing like him. I was only 11 or 12. It was crazy. But, um, and then well, I guess it was really when punk rock came out when I first got Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols. Um, that's when it first sort of hit on me that because i've been really into kiss for many many years we all I wanted to be peter Chris and i wanted to be a drummer and i became a drummer and did all this but it wasn't until the sex pistols record came out and i listened to it that i'm like i can do this like this isn't just you know i can't i'm not just going to be a fanboy of paul stanley and gene simmons ace fraley and peter chris for the rest of my life i can become paul stanley gene simmons ace fraley and peter chris yeah, and that's that's sort of what the the Sex Pistols opened up for me, you know. And it's like, oh shit, I can do this. 
And uh, so I guess even back then, I was always striving. There's just always been something in me that's pushing me forward. I don't know what it, the hell it is. So sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I wish I could just be a schlub sitting on the sofa getting fat and <laughs> watching reruns of Family Ties or something, but I just can't do it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, like, you know, the, 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 you, you had the same thing I did. Uh, when you were a kid, you had uh, that imaginary friend deal. Uh, you claim yours didn't speak to you where mine did, but in all actuality, that could possibly have been a harbinger of things to come. I mean, to ha I, I stand by this. We're born into this somehow. Mm -hmm. You don't just end up on the path. Something happens mm -hmm. uh, right at the outset that kind of pushes sure. you in that direction. Yep. My opinion is it was that. But, you know, I didn't live your life. I didn't, I don't know what your experience was as a small child with an imaginary friend. You know, most, most of the, of the time it's born of boredom, right? Or yeah, isolation. I yeah, I think it was more boredom and isolation. I don't, I don't really recall there really being somebody there. I think I, but who knows when you're a kid, you know, imagination and reality kind of blend together. They sort of bleed together. So it's hard to say. Well, we, yeah, but, we, uh, we don't realize it's it's not real until someone disabuses us of the notion that it is not. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right, uh, right. Like, I have vivid memories of having, and it, this is going to sound strange, but I've known many people who've had the same vivid memory of having the ability to walk up and down stairs without my feet. Just mm -hmm, mm -hmm. hover down, hover up. Oh, yeah. That's, Was that's, I, that's was I really doing it? Who knows? But I'm also of the opinion that had my parents not told me you couldn't do that, maybe mm -hmm. I'd still be doing that. Who knows? It, it could have been. It could have been sort of a, a sort of a taste of what is actually the astral travel, like your astral yeah. body. And yeah. I had. I definitely had an experience like that just before I joined the dwarves. I remember I was uh, living with this band, Sonic Brain Jam. We're living on Fell and. Fillmore Street in San Francisco, and I was drinking like a fish, but also fucking like a demon. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I just remember one time lying in my room, and next thing I know, I'm out of my body. And next thing I'm low, no, I'm bumping up against the ceiling like a balloon, and I'm sort of floating around. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I'm like, well, maybe I should try to get out the door and go outside, and maybe I can break into a beautiful lady's bedroom and watch her own dress you know as soon as i started thinking about something material like that it's just like it all i just came back into my body but yeah. for a good 15 minutes i was just bouncing around in my bedroom like a balloon it was really strange i'll never forget that so that that might have been the beginning of something where something in me was going it's time to wake up now you got things to do let's go uh, but, and, you know. and that's the thing that that which tethers us to reality most, uh, I think, is really what is the biggest hindrance to us, um, because this is really the least of all that there is. I mean, I'm not saying quit your job and just go and oh. and, and exist in a room and and meditate because you're not going to get anywhere that way. But, mm -hmm. but we have to mind more than just our day-to-day, -day, our nine-to-five job and, yeah, and, and right. paying your bills and your taxes. There's there's yeah. so many other levels to our existence that are oh, yeah. there for the taking. And yeah, yeah. it's incredible that you're doing that at such a, a, a vast pace. 
Um, obviously, you've had help, but it's inspiring. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> some people do decide to just get away from the world. Buddhist monks go into monasteries and spend many, many years um, studying and meditating and, and working hard. I mean, if you think Buddhists are just people that sit around on their asses and go home all day, man, no. Severe discipline. And these people are, I mean, you just read about some of the uh, Tibetan Buddhists and how they grew up as children. You know, the Dalai Lama himself or Chagyam Trungpa, uh, severe discipline they were put through at a very early age and, uh, and then eventually having a breakthrough. So there's still avenues like that open up to people, but very few people have the ability to really go and do that. But those avenues are still open, but really, I think one thing I like about Salima the most is that Crowley said, don't, don't, don't go away to a monastery, man. Don't, you know, maybe periodically go somewhere to meditate and tap into shit, but um, you, know, you got to live the world. You got to live out, you live your life and go out and live in the world. And that's, and, you know, um, what was his uh, great quote of his? Um, uh, something like, count your blessings by your wounds. Or something like that. Um, I'm getting so old, I can't remember shit anymore. But uh, it's, it's something along those lines, like um, essentially, you know, count how important your life has been by how many painful things you've had to endure, and you're not going to uh, experience those things unless you you go out and try to live. And um, I sure as hell did that. I mean. Uh -huh. Especially touring with the band, um, you know, there was no um, there was no net underneath us. You know, we, we were just four or five guys in a van, just driving around the country, either pissing people off or making people happy. You know, you never knew what was going to happen each night, but um, there was no safety net, um, so anything could have happened out there. And, you know, Black still has the scars from, you know, what he's had to endure as the front man for a band like this. You know, he, his knees are in bad shape. You know, he, you know, he, he's, he's gone to hell and back and here he is still fucking doing it. Yeah. I mean, I respect that a lot. That's, you know, I couldn't do it. I was done. Of course, he didn't drink as much as I did <laughs> or at all, really. Yeah. But, well, it would, uh, it would probably surprise a lot of people, but. You know, yeah. you were you were the kind of the totem of that band for a very long time. I mean, they 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 wrote a song about it. Yeah, you know what I mean. And to this day, I was just talking to Blag. He, he says, "I I I don't make a secret of it. Vag is my favorite. No, oh. I make no bones about it. You could listen to the interview. He he plainly <laughs> states it. Vag is my favorite. I don't care who ups who gets upset about it. That's just yeah." What you know, uh, I, I think you, he, he wanted you in the band because you were the spirit of that band for better or worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think for the, for better, because as you'd said, you weren't doing it to be malicious. It was the show. It was the, mm -hmm. the you were embodying the spirit, that spirit of that band. Um, and now you're embodying the spirit of your writing and of your your spirituality and as i said before it's very impressive uh if, if i were to ask you to kind of sum up who vagmore is now into a couple sentences for the listening audience how would you uh go about doing that 
You son of a bitch. Oh. <laughs> Sum up Vag more in a few sentences. Oh, good God. Oh, good God. There we go. <laughs> uh, um, ex always explore, always accelerate, always ascend. Never be... Never rest on your laurels. Always reach for something better and something higher. That's kind of what I've been trying to do. Which, you know, having been at the very bottom, wasn't so hard. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's, I guess that's kind of what I'm doing now. Wherever this ascension is supposed to take me. Which, you know, the path leads to only one thing, you know, at some point for all of us is death. Yeah. But as we covered, I'm not afraid of death in any way, shape, or form. I just know I'm just going to move on to the next life so and begin, start the journey all over again. So to me, I that's fantastic. That's exactly what I want. It's comforting. Yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah. And, and I think that's why I've never feared, you know, the idea of death. And, and being raised Roman Catholic maybe gave me a, a leg up in that. Because, you know, the idea of, of you know, the soul's quintessence uh, was raised into me. It was born into me, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. It was taught to me from the, the very beginnings of, of my consciousness. Like, what, this goes on. You know, this mm -hmm. is all. Um, there, were, there were many years where I doubted that, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to be certain. But, you know, I just learned how to reapply it. And, and through Gnosticism, I kind of learned to integrate everything from mm. my, my previous life as a Catholic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Gnosticism is good for that. That's for sure. Oh, See, I, my, mother was, my mother was an atheist. My father was an Irish Catholic. No, I'm an so Irish. My brother and my sister got a little bit of that. But my mother was like, when I was a kid, I went out and I got up as high in the tree as I could. And I looked and I didn't see no damn God. There ain't no God. So fuck it. <laughs> that was, that's how she got around all that. But... um. Yeah, like you explore, like I've always known that there's something more and I've always known that, and I, and maybe I'll reveal it <clears throat> in one of my upcoming books. Um, I, I know who I'm fairly certain I know who I was in the past and they were writers. Um, but, you know, I, one thing that Buddhism has really helped me uh, to study more and more is because Buddhists reject that there is a, like Crowley says, every man and every woman is a star, and the star carries on. Crowley's a poet. So yeah. I think he was trying to poeticize something that's a little more complicated than that. I think the Buddhists actually understood it the best. And they said, there isn't really a self, but there are these aggregates and memories that carry on. It's not really you, because there's no actual self or ego, but these 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 aggregates of memory and whatnot and uh, aggregates of behavior and thought um do carry on and uh, you know to me that's just a much more um it's more much more insightful and complicated than just that we're a ball of light and one light gets done with this body and then this light drops into another body yeah which may may be it could actually be how exactly it is but I, I like the buddhist idea of you know a little more subtle than that there are these aggregates of memories that carry on and since 
uh, it's, you know, it's called the mind stream for a reason. It's mind. It's a constant stream that permeates everything and everything conscious experiences it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I, you know, I think I've remembered a few aggregates from the past and I certainly hope I remember, you know, the aggregates I've accumulated in this life and I probably will and just probably carry on with what I'm doing now into the next one. So that'll be interesting. Well, that's how enlightenment works, but yeah, where, where the hell that leads me. Right. Hopefully I don't, hopefully I don't have to drink like a fish anymore or snort <laughs> enough blow to kill a horse. <laughs> hopefully I got that out of the way. I don't have to do that anymore. Well, if Dar if Dharma is to be believed or karma actually is to be believed, mm -hmm. uh, you certainly won't have to, but got I, I hope not for your soul's sake. For certain. <laughs> Me too. Jesus. God, just for the fuck the soul, just the body itself. Right. How the hell did this I don't know how the hell this thing made it through it? You were supposed to. That's that's yep. the, the only way I could I could sum it up. I don't know how yeah. I got through, you know, over fifteen years of opioid and heroin dependency without mm -hmm. blowing my liver and teeth. I still have all my teeth. Oh yeah, that's amazing. I was I was meant to chew food and and be alive right. <laughs> yeah yeah see with i didn't like to slow down i like to go fast well, but i loved but i loved the alcohol so that's why that's why cocaine really cocaine really just came in because i wanted to stay awake to drink more and hit on more women and have more sex and go more crazy yeah because i you know it's like I, I guess it was very childish because as when you're a child you don't want to go to bed you want to stay up with the adults and see what happens yeah, you know. So in my twenties and thirties, I don't want to go to bed. I want to stay up and see what happens and make shit happen. Cocaine was, you know, as soon as you start nodding out because you've had way too much vodka and whiskey, you just snort a few lines and boom, let's go. Yep. So it was very childlike in that sense. Like, let's go play with the adults. Let's say I was but wired I like differently. Uh, heroin and, and and opioids made me go fast. Oh really? Oh yeah. yeah. Some people have told me that. That's weird. Yeah. They're the worst. They're the worst opioid addicts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just never, never. I, I tried. Remember one time, and this will be in the in the final book. Um, me and my friends who were living in vans and had our own moving company in San Francisco in the mid '80s. Uh, we used to go around. Um, we lived in the truck that we used as a moving van, and we used to go around um, finding abandoned vans and getting the engines to work and just taking them. We started compiling like an army of vans, you know. And one time, uh, our, I was in a band called The Test Subjects, and my bass player, um, Michael Kingsley, otherwise known as Michael Hollick, um, he found like a huge ball of, uh, of heroin or, or um, black tar. Yeah. Yeah, this is how I, the only drug I don't know much about. So we ended up smoking some of that and just hanging out, and oh my God, it felt great. But that's as close to you know anything like heroin or opiates like that I've ever got to. Yeah, it's never, it was never my drug. Yeah, sadly, that was my uh, that was my first love. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, uh, all these all these places that 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 we uh, send ourselves to, it's a yearning for something other. I think. Uh, oh yeah. You know, we're we're either trying to escape what's here or we're trying to find what's there. And I think uh -huh. both, both equal the same thing. And, and once you realize that you're not going to get it in a prepackaged pill mm -hmm. powder, powder or whatever, mm -hmm. 
the better off you are, yeah. but we never figure that out because we're frail. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, do, I did. I had some pretty phenomenal spiritual experiences on certain psychedelics. Well, that's like once, different. Yeah. I mean, once on acid, I, I, I you know, having been raised an atheist, I, I never thought anything about Jesus, but I had some sort of weird bodily vision of, which I realize now is sort of a vision of Christ, like the Gnostic Christ. Mm-hmm. Not the church's Christ, the Gnostic yeah. version. And then years later, high out of my mind on um, on uh, psychedelic mushrooms, which my girlfriend at the time was selling, uh, she would turn into this tea. Oh my God, this tea would just. Um, and we went to we were in Humboldt to go buy some more stuff for her business, and um, uh, high out of my mind, and I just remembered on this mushroom tea, and just remembered looking at this little trickling of water that was going down right by us, this little creek, and I was just stream, stream, mind stream, mind stream. It's all a mind stream. We're all in a mind stream. And then I looked at her and I realized, you and I have been together in the past. Our mind streams have crossed. We've done this before together. And she was like, she was like, whatever, man. But, you know, she was having her own <laughs> thing that she was going through. But I, I just recognized that, like, so that... When I started reading in Buddhism about the mind stream, I was like, oh, I've had a vision of that. I've understood that. And then when I was reading Gnosticism about sort of a bodily vision of Christ, where I actually put, it was like I put myself on the cross in this acid trip when I must have been 18, 19, I can't even remember. And uh, then when I read, read those texts later, I realized what experience I was having. And that was brought on by psychedelics, which were just amazing. But you can't. If you then go and start taking LSD every goddamn day because you want to relive that experience, you're just going to burn yourself out. Yeah. So, you know, it was gradual, but then as, you know, I started getting older and got rid of the alcohol and the drugs and started meditating, all those experiences started coming back to me, and I realized what, ha- what had happened. And I'm like, oh, I was just tapping into all that stuff. Yeah. And like William Blake says, all religions are one. So it makes sense that, you know, within one lifetime I can have this... Buddhist vision of the mind stream and the Christ vision, you know. And at the same time be a, a Thelmite, so-called Satanist, so, you know. Right. Go figure. Well, and, you know, this is neither here nor there. Do you have a thing with owls? At all? I Yeah, I do. You know, I like them, and we used to have some hooting out in front of my mom's house, and I used to love them. Um, the owls in Twin Peaks. I love Twin Peaks. When it first came out, there was oh, these yeah. owls in Twin Peaks. They're really cool. And it's like, oh, owls are cool, man. And there, I know the um, Native American Indians have a whole um, sort of myth and whatnot about the owls. So, yeah, I mean, they're. I always found them fascinating. I can't say I've ever had any experiences, you know, spiritual experiences with owls. No, I just, I, I for some reason, owls popped into my head. I'm looking at you, I'm like, Owls. I don't know why. Owls. But, but, but <laughs> there's. The house? <laughs> <laughs> but there's, yeah, there is uh, definitely a, a spiritual connection to owls and whatnot. That was just a very random thing. So, Vinny, we're cutting this out when you're editing this. That was just a, <laughs> a rando Pete thing to do. But uh, I guess to kind of wrap this up, I, I, I've asked you everything I wanted to ask you, but uh, what would you like to tell everyone else? Uh, outside of just read the book, <laughs> um, about me or just anything. Uh, well, what if if you were to be tasked with like 
someone were to ask you like a, a piece of wisdom, something, some parting wisdom that you can impart upon people to kind of make their lives a more full and beautiful thing, what would that be? Pretty much I've lived my life for this whole time. Always follow your instincts, always follow your intuition. The instincts are the animal nature, which is tapped into the world that we live around us, uh, that we live in all around us, and the intuition is something higher. So you follow both. Um, you know, Alistair Crowley um, had written, and I believe um, his later incarnation, James Beck, had written, you know, it's the combination of God and beast. It's very important. Boyd Rice put out a record, which has always been my favorite, God and Beast. I mean, something about that whole combination, Nietzsche writes about it in a couple of passages, I think, in Will to Power. Um, always follow your animal instincts and your higher intuition. Put them together as God and Beast and um, follow what you know to be true with those two things, and you'll probably turn out all right. No matter what kind of shit you might put yourself through. <laughs> Listen, this has been a blast. I uh, absolutely. I, I got I got more than I thought I would, and that's wonderful. And uh, listen, the next book comes down the pike. I'd love to talk to you again if you'd come on. Absolutely, you know it. Awesome, brother. It was a pleasure to meet you, Vag. Absolutely. Oh, one more thing. Yeah. Um, is it okay if I take your uh, your great uh, review on Amazon and put it up on my Facebook page? And please. I'll, I'll plug the podcast and tell that this is going to be coming up within the next few weeks, but uh, you know, I'll plug the podcast and that, that review is fantastic. Thank you. I'm glad you appreciated it. That was, I really did. it was very in the moment and honest. Oh, yeah. I, I, I read it in very, very quick succession. Uh, your, your writing style is very matter of fact, but there's an art to it because it's not uh it's from, I, I went to, I have an English degree. Um, uh, th that was my, always my love. I'd always wanted to be a writer. I always was a writer. I just had it in my head that I had to go to school to be one. Which right. Yeah. Bullshit. I, I, could, yeah. I could, I could have just dropped out and done it. Henry Rollins taught me that that's not the case. I mean, fucking Rollins could do it. Anyone could do it. Right. But you know, when, when you'd mentioned it to me, I was like, no one reviewed it yet. Okay. <laughs> Boom. Awesome. two minutes 15 seconds maybe oh that's Boom. perfect and, and well you know i i um just to wrap up to uh you know writing the first book my life with the dwarves on for anyone that doesn't know here they are mm -hmm. go buy them you gotta pay for them <laughs> um my life with the dwarves was written pretty rapidly and just all in one shot pretty much and there's some things i took out iris berry from pirate hostage press was helping me and did the layout, an amazing layout job she did. Uh, came out pretty easy. This book, I wrote it, and I started typing it in, and just something wasn't right. It was just, there wasn't that energy. There wasn't that, I don't know, reaching. There wasn't that acceleration. There, it wasn't accelerating. I had to rewrite the whole fucking thing. Jesus. Yeah. I had to, yeah. I mean, I know it's only, what, 123 pages or what have you, but, you know, I just read through it and went, this just isn't right. I got to do this over. I got to do this over. And then I just got in the right mindset and I just sort of simplified everything. And, and I tried to speak more like I would if I was just speaking to somebody about telling, you know, telling these stories. And then, you know, it just all sort of came out. And then that's what you got. And I, 
I, I definitely wanted it to be like the first book, sort of an acceleration, like you, like a dwarf show. You pick it up, right off the bat, you're getting beer spit on you. Right off the bat, there's going to be maybe a guitar swung at your face, you know, you know. And then at the end, somebody's going to jump off their uh, through the drums off the stage and maybe put their penis on your neck. <laughs> and then there's nothing but feedback and wrecked shit all over. I mean, like, so I had to have that acceleration for to me that was really important. And uh, so now I, you know. I've just got to figure out how the hell I'm going to do the last one and see if I can get it to be just as interesting. I, I think that's only inevitable at this point. I mean, I, I hope so. You, you never know. I mean, <laughs> you as a writer, you must know, you know, you just never know. It's like either it comes or it doesn't. Right. Uh, I, as long as you let it happen to you. Yeah. 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 That's you have it beaten, but it, the first, these last two books, which are the first, two of the trilogy have been one hell of a ride and you know the lack of verbosity was i think the most refreshing part just to, because you're not spinning a web you're not telling a tale it's it's not fiction this is this is as it happened this is matter of fact uh a journalist onto your own life as and, and that's sort of why there, it was true. It was too verbose when I first wrote the second one. It really was, and I just had to dumb it down. I don't know if dumbing it down is the right way to put it, but I just had to simplify and accelerate. So, so I had to rewrite the whole damn thing. And I'm actually, you know, other than some problems with the layout, you know, I'm pretty happy with it. And and all that comes down to is people. You have to open it up a little bit more than you would a normal paperback. Just right, right. Pry it yeah. open a little bit more, and you're fine. A little bit more. You'll be fine. It's yeah, kids love it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure some kids out there, some of the scenes in these books, they'll certainly be leaving a little stain. Sure, but you know, uh, at, at this point in society, you have seen worse on oh, yeah. Instagram. You know, you've, oh, you've oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it, this is just one human being experiencing life in a in a way that many haven't <laughs> yeah 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 or also in a way that many have too because you know I, I did write this for those people who did struggle with drug and alcohol addiction and you know i hope this helps them out it did it did and you know to just that recognition of of a, a counterpart in in that life's journey is always you know it, it it's to know that other people know that path and have gotten mm -hmm. past it is always a comfort Oh yeah, no, it really is. Yeah, no, it's it's been a hell of a path. But I have to thank the people at New Perceptions in Northridge, California. You know the rehab I went to. Uh, specifically, Stanley Wilson, who um, you know he passed away in the last year or so, but uh, just amazing guy. I mean, he was just the soul of New Perceptions, and uh, and uh, you know just him telling us those stories. I relate in the book, you know about. He and his buddies getting a bunch of crack and a bunch of AK-47s and kicking in the bank door and jumping up on the counter and, oh, you rich white motherfucker's going to give me your money. I'm going to blow you all away. And <laughs> like, that's what kind of landed him in jail and eventually got him to go down the sober path. And people like that, you know, his stories, he didn't write books, but man, he was talking to people one-on-one -on -one at New Perceptions every single day and huge ins inspiration for me. It's an incredible it's an incredible life lesson and journey for people to behold whether you've been down that path or not but let's face it in this day and age most people have been touched by it 
Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which which makes it prescient. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, yeah, there's, yeah, the drugs and alcohol, you know, it started pretty much in the 60s, I guess, maybe a little bit in the 50s, but, you know, it's it's certainly increased among our youth. But that's just for our civilization. I mean, there's been drugs and, and all sorts of things in, in every single civilization, but this particular one, which with which has almost no spiritual faculty to it whatsoever, where everything is just so consumerist materialism, um, I think Nicholas Schreck calls it hyper-commercialism, hyper-capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that describes it per- perfectly, because really there is something hyper about it, and there's just no there there. There's no real soul. There's no spirituality. And so people are just spinning out of control amongst all this shit. So uh, you know, if you spin out of control and, and you can take a break and find a foothold, you know, there's a lot of things from the ancient past and the not-so-ancient past that can help you out. You know, people have been utilizing religion and spirituality ever since day one. So do it. Absolutely. And on that note, I will bid you good evening. Thank you so much for all of the wisdom and beautiful words, my friend. Sure. Well, thank you very much. And I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Peter. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. And there you have it, my friends. I know we've been gone for a while. It's our first episode in 2024. Uh, We have more to come. I have a lot in store for the remainder of this season, which we are going to, uh, we're going to be going until October. And then I take another break. Uh, I know I take breaks. Who would have thought? Vag is incredible. Uh, what a an interesting human being, truly. Uh, it's not often that I get to talk to someone that in tune with the spiritual, with with uh, the left-hand path, as it were. Tons of fun. Uh, I can't wait to talk to Vag again. I can't wait for his next book to come down the pike. Uh, I hope everybody had a great Christmas, New Year, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate, however you celebrate this season. I hope it was wonderful. Um, He's been Vag. I've been Peter. You've been beautiful. And this has been the book of Very, Very Bad Things Podcast. Take care of each other, everybody. We're all we've got. Good night.
Cassie Bernal, 17, dabbled in witchcraft before she was born again. One of the gunmen asked, do you believe in God? She said she did. He pulled the trigger. Stephen Robert Curnow, 14, hoped to become a Navy pilot. He was a big Star Wars fan and an avid soccer player. His father had recently taught him to referee. Corey DePooter, 17, was into wrestling, golf, and hunting, but he liked fishing death. This spring, the junior drove to Oklahoma with his best friend for a fishing expedition. Kelly Fleming, 16, moved to Littleton from Phoenix, Arizona a year and a half ago. She was creative, writing, poetry, composing songs, and learning to play the guitar. Matthew Kechter, 16, was trying to make the starting squad as a lineman on the varsity football team. Still, the sophomore had time to maintain a straight A average. Daniel Mauser, 15, liked the challenge. He excelled at the sciences, but took on cross-country to push himself and the bank to overcome his shyness. Daniel Rohrbaugh, 15, pitched in at his dad's electronics shop and the family's farm in Kansas. He was shot after doubling back to the cafeteria to help. William David Sanders, 47, a business teacher, was hit as he shepherded students to safety. As the father of four lay dying, he said, tell my girls I love them. Rachel Scott, 17, planned to become a missionary in Africa and starred in a recent school play. She had a kindly spirit that won her many friends. Isaiah Scholes, 18, survived a congenital heart defect and earned a spot on the football team. The killers appeared to seek him out largely because of his race. John Tomlin, 16, had an easy smile and a soft spot for the beat-up Chevy he paid for himself. Last year, he traveled with his dad to Mexico to build a house for the poor. Lauren Townsend, 18, had a 4.0 grade average, making her a strong contender for valedictorian. She also captained the girls' volleyball team. Kyle Velasquez, 16, had been a slow learner and was very shy. But after mentoring him for a year, Kent Kosmeyer says he opened up more and we became friends.
cannot see the forest because there are too many trees, just as you cannot see that there is no heaven because you live life on your knees. You justify the nothingness of your existence by spinning fables, telling fairy tales, and preaching lies, mainly to yourself. Angels are not watching over you. No one is. You are alone and will be until you die and fade into oblivion. You created your God in your own image, and he is ugly, stupid, and pathetic. You imagine a lake of fire that burns eternal for those you condemn, while you and your kind construct a living hell right here on Earth. A world of shit, populated by twisted miscreants, far more evil in the banality of their very existence than any demon or devil could ever aspire to be. Their propensity for waste, destruction, and general ruin is equaled only by the level of my contempt for them. For you. Useless. Garbage. Human. Monkey, you did not evolve, you simply mutated. Welcome to the jungle, where mediocrity is king and the true predators have withered and died, sick from the rancid meat of the infected sheep that thrive here. If I could, I would rain hellfire on your dying world, bring destruction to your cities until blood flowed waist-deep in their streets. I spit on your civilization. You don't know the meaning of the word. I revel in its decay, and will watch it rot, crumble, and burn with true joy in my heart. My soul is black and full of hate. It was your world that made it that way. Now my dream is to watch you die. Go ahead, run. Pray to the primate god you made. Monkey! He will not listen. He does not exist. There is no salvation for you today. Only death.
day and night, meet inside with the rape of millions under a bearable light. With the slaughter, then comes decay, as life turns to night and then death back to day. We struggle onward in the soil of our greed, breaking all of our bonds in the heaven of our need. Hell is the bliss where all possibilities lie, and devil and virgin fuck just to die. Reborn in the womb of our hate To destroy a world that has lived far too late Earth that devours our flesh torn apart Under the eye of the moon As the end is the start Circling back on our way As life turns to night And death back to day So we return Circle back our own way As life turns to night And death back to day
Need. Hail. Beer. Grog. Liquor. Booze. Moonshine. Beach. Nectar of the gods. Aquavita. Firewater. Absolute power. The devil's delight. Demon roll. My occasional nemesis. My partner in crime. My old friend. Would that I have lived and died. I have laughed and cried. Told truth and lied. Your God defied. Would that I have battled and brawled. I have lived and crawled. Stammered and articulated. Been defeated and matriculated. I am intoxicated by its essence. Possessed by its power. Pick your poison, they say. Demon realm. Tribal barbarians. Roman centurions. Vikings and pirates. Blue bloods and tyrants. Demon realm. My ancestors imbibed spirits to bolster their courage in battle and to numb the pain of their wounds in the aftermath. Today, I follow in their footsteps. We celebrate and commiserate. We create and we eliminate. Demon realm. The next time you laugh, as I stumble down a staircase, or tumble from a bar stool, remember this. It is only my continued state of anesthetization that keeps me from killing you.
Only the darkness. Where nothing is said. Where no truth is spoken. I will believe put to bed. No passion for is's. Or was's or were's. No optimism. Only the darkness Once we have sprung For all impressions Where dogma is sought Deep in the void Not lost in the hole Oppression is the opiate of the masses. People genuinely get off on it. Those at the bottom thrive under conditions of oppression, and those at the top revel in imposing such conditions. Human nature demands it. Society, exactly as it now exists, is the ultimate expression of sadomasochism in action. This is an S&M is a mere game. There's no role-playing involved. The roles are all real with real masters and real servants. There's no dressing up required to be a player in this enactment. You don't have to wear your handkerchief in a certain pocket to signal your position as a sadist or masochist either. You simply assume the position. This is sadomasochism not as a fetish, but in practical application. The sting of the riding crop is replaced by a more generalized sort of malaise. But when all is said and done, it is still an expression of people luxuriating in pain and submission. To say that people love to suffer is viewed as decadent cynicism by many, but a cursory glance at the world around us would definitely seem to support such a thesis. How telling it is that even in the context of a system created in absolute ignorance of man's true character, he remains true to his nature regardless.
Six feet around!